From WHQR Public Media, this is a podcast-only edition of The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. We're in full election mode, and our town halls for New Hanover County School Board, commissioners, and state-level races from around our region have our schedule pretty full. But there's another very important campaign to cover, the race for New Hanover County Sheriff, which is seeing a contested seat in the general election for the first time in eight years. Democratic candidate Sheriff Ed McMahon started his law enforcement career as a Vermont state trooper before moving to Wilmington and joining the sheriff's office here in 1991. He was first appointed New Hanover County Sheriff in 2009 and won elections in 2010, 2014, and an uncontested race in 2018. Earlier this year, he defeated Democratic challenger Kelvin Hargrove in the primary by a comfortable nearly two-to-one margin. Republican candidate Matt Rhodes is a small business owner and a concealed carry instructor. He has served on the county's Juvenile Crime Prevention Board and is a member of the New Hanover County Law Enforcement Officers Association. That's a community service nonprofit organization. Our production team flipped a coin, and based on that, we'll be playing our interview with Sheriff McMahon first, followed by our interview with Matt Rhodes. All right, my guest now is Sheriff Ed McMahon. He is running for Sheriff of New Hanover County in the 2022 elections. Sheriff, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. So, as I ask all incumbents, why do you still want this job? It's, you know, law enforcement is, it's a passion. And uh, I've just, the opportunity for the last 13 years to serve as sheriff has been amazing. And even though I can retire and I'm old enough to retire, my family probably wishes I would retire. I just had no peace about it. I feel like the community still needs me. The agency needs me. I've just got more to give in, in the leadership. You know, as you get older, I think you get wiser. Um, so I just feel like I have more to give in the leadership uh, and, um, I guess, vision and mission of, of our law enforcement. So I want to get into some of the issues that we've heard yes. from, from our listeners and our readers. Uh, one we hear about a lot, and this is part to do with the sheriff's office, part to do with the schools, but that's issue of school resource offices yes. or SROs. Yes. How do you think about this issue? Because we certainly hear people who want more, people who want less. Right. So early 90s, I came here in 91 as a deputy. Early 90s, I was a school resource officer. I'll just uh, use SRO. I was an SRO at Laney High School. Loved it. Uh, I still have friendships that I forged with students that are now adults. Um, SRO is so important and so critical for our children. And now, recently, with the whole added safety issue, um, I think that they are instrumental in helping the next generation see what law enforcement is and gives us an opportunity to mentor, to counsel, just enjoy, to have fun. But at the same time, we're the guardians, but when we have to, we are also warriors, and we have to have that mindset to protect our children. We currently have 69 school resource officers. 65 are ours, and four belong to Wilmington PD, who's under, uh, under ours. Um, there's an SRO in every school. There are multiple SROs in the high schools. Uh, very, very, to me, very important that our children have to have a safe environment to learn and, and to be able to trust us and for us to be able to keep them safe. One of the questions we've heard a lot about is worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Someone wants to perpetrate an act of violence yes. against students at a, yes. at a school. Absolute worst case scenario. Yes. Do the SROs have the training to deal with a nightmare situation like that? So, yes, they do. Absolutely. Again, we train them. They're guardians. We train them with a more warrior mindset. They are trained to go to the threat and take care of it, wipe it out, eliminate it. Unfortunately, last year, Hanover had a shooting at the school. There were three SROs at the school at the time. Within 30, well, in 33 seconds, all right, anybody knows New Hanover, big school, 33 seconds, the first SRO was at the student's side, rendering first aid. Went from there after the threat. 
So 33 seconds after the shooting, first the SRO was at the student, turned him over to an administrator, and went after the threat. The other two SROs, within within a minute, within a minute and a half, were all going after the threat, and one was calling on the radio. The first outside, when the call went out, the first outside police officer, was a police officer, one minute was there. Second one, within two minutes. Not only, was so within two minutes, you had officers arriving from regular patrol, city officers, and all three school resource officers there by the end of the day, by five o'clock, had the person in custody, school turned back over. So we've shown that, yes, we train them. We've been doing this. I was an SRO in the early 90s. So, yes, we train them. We give them what they need on their uniforms. They're not going to go run looking for some special weapon. We train them with what they're carrying on them to go to the threat and to eliminate the threat. The flip side of that, we've heard from people who are concerned that maybe an SRO might criminalize something that maybe could be handled administratively. Absolutely. I'm glad glad you asked that. So back in my day in the early 90s, zero tolerance, everybody's getting arrested. And then all of a sudden, I'm sheriff. and I'm like, wait a minute. Would I do that to my children? Would I do that to my grandchildren? I've got seven grandchildren now, all school age. I said, we got got to be better. So we, of arrestable offenses, not violent, not drug dealers, that type of stuff, over 70% of arrestable offenses fights, maybe a little minor thing of uh, possession of marijuana, you know, things like that are diverted by the SROs themselves. We have empowered the SROs, and that's through Ben David, that's through Judge Corporating, through our programs, to go ahead and divert as many charges as we can that are not dangerous, that are not violent, that are not drug dealers. So over 70% have been diverted by us right on the front line. Once they get to court, I'm sure a lot more are diverted. But anything that's not serious, we, the kids need to be in the schoolroom, not in the courtroom, in their learning, unless they're dangerous, unless they're dealing drugs, then you know they, there's no place for them in the schools. Moving on to uh, kind of a related issue. So the shooting at New Hanover High School. Yes. And the arrest of, and and conviction of Chance Diablo yes. made a lot of people start talking about violence in Wilmington yes. again, which sort of is and isn't your bailiwick, right. right? Yes. So for people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about how New Hanover County jurisdiction works? Absolutely. So you've got the Wilmington police, you've got some other little beach town polices and, and things like that. And so if you're inside the Wilmington city limits, you have Chief Donnie and the Wilmington Police Department. I am funded, and my primary responsibility is for pretty much anything outside of, it's the easiest, outside of Wilmington. It's the unincorporated areas. So, and we'll talk about that first. In the past year, violent crime in your county, in the unincorporated areas, is down 17%. 17% violent crime is down in the last year. In the last seven years, overall, all crime is down 41%. In the unincorporated areas, which is my primary responsibility. Now you say, hold it, time out. You're everybody's sheriff. Yes, I am. So I'm not funded to do inside the city, but we have over 20 deputies assigned to city task force, which are run by Chief Donnie and the Wilmington Police Department. So we have over 20 that are assigned working side by side with Wilmington Police because the bad guys don't know jurisdictions, so we don't either. Uh, Chief and I meet, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be together tomorrow night. We, we talk just about daily about crime, about how I can help, but it's inside his primary jurisdiction under his leadership. Now you'll have to get, like you said, the exact from the police chief, but I do know that so far this year, crime in the city is lower than it was last year. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying it is lower. And what's very interesting is their crime solvability rate, so they've had murders, but their solvability, their their solvability rate is over ninety percent. Um, you know, that that says a lot for those for those police officers or detectives. Yeah, there's crime happening, but they're making arrests and they're arresting them. So I'm committed to partner with the police as much as I can, but then again, not my primary my primary area is seventy percent 
less violent crime in the past year, 41% less all crime in the past seven years. Sure. Um, and again, no, this is this is not casting aspersions at the nope. work that Donnie Williams and the WPD does. But do you think there is more that the sheriff's office could do in the incorporated city limits of Wilmington if there was the funding and the will to do it? I, you know, the commissioner's county marriage office has been very good at funding. Um, and, you know, I'm leery of just throwing manpower at a problem. Um, and, I, you know, the chief and I were doing an interview this morning um, and about um, something we're doing tomorrow night with a take back the night, you know, function. And it takes the community to help us. So <clears throat> I think at this point, I would leave that in the chief's hands. I can't come in and take over law enforcement in the city. When you call 911, it goes to the city. So if I tried to take over, I wouldn't know what was going on 911, and then it's going to be dysfunctional. I think us working together, which in my opinion, we're working with the city police as well, if not better than we ever have. And so I, I don't see where we can do more than what we're doing. Um, because that has got to be primarily up to the police chief. And if he needs anything or wants anything, you know, we talk almost daily. The other part of this violence problem and a possible solution it, that the, that's come from the county side has been Port City United. Okay. And we talked about this, I believe, five or six months ago. But it was pretty early on. Yes. Have you had a chance to maybe have some conversations with them or evaluate the work they're doing sort of at this point? So I, I really have not. They don't, you know, they don't answer to me. I've not gotten any information from them, at, you know, at all. I'm not aware of the police getting information from them. So I think that would be, I'm for anything that can help reducing crime and help work in the community. But again, I don't really know anything much about you know, what they're doing. Okay, so last question, um, two-part question. And this is about staffing. Okay. You know, keeping the ranks full. The first part is, ongoing conversation but how is dealing with attrition and just you know keeping people invested and engaged it's tough it's tough it's been it, law enforcement's been been through the ringer the last few years and we've had the pandemic and the protests and the riots and just there's been a lot of negativity about law enforcement as a whole we have been working the whole profession and i think you see it in restaurants too it's hard to get people to work right now but now, if you, you paint this, if this picture is painted of what law enforcement is, then it's really, it's tough to get people. Now, we are, we are more blessed than a lot of agencies. Um, well, we just got 18 positions in July, a lot of those for the, you know, for the school resource officers. So trying to fill those has kind of got us, you know, jumping around. Um, but it's, it's tough to get good qualified people because we're, we cannot lower our standards or the community will pay. Um, so we're getting them, but I mean, it's tougher than it used to be. Yeah. So the other part of this, and this is a conversation we've had with Donnie Williams too, is about the one bad apple scenario. Right. Um, this is something mm. that Donnie had to deal with, unfortunately, in a very public way. Yes. Have you dealt with that? Have you had to do some soul searching or some... Yeah. you know, some internal look at, you know, where there might be people with extremist views. Absolutely. We we hold ourselves, we have to hold ourselves to the highest standards. Our mantra in the sheriff's office is, you've heard me talk about professionalism, responsibility, accountability, integrity. If we don't hold ourselves to that, then we're no good. So absolutely, we have excellent training that the state provides. We go over and above on bias, uh, on, you know, your perceptions and what your perception may actually be a bias. If you don't understand the other person's shoes, we're not above the law. We have to hold ourselves accountable. Everything from speeding, from our window tent, everything that we hold the citizens responsible, we have to hold ourselves accountable and responsible to. And that has been something, and you know, you know, if you look over my 13 years, we've had deputies that have been arrested um, by the SBI. I call them in. Anytime it could be criminal, I call in the state. And as far as internal, we've had a bunch that have been forced to resign or I've terminated for serious policy violations. And our internal affairs unit is that accountability and integrity unit. They answer to me and to the chief deputy 
and we hold them. We have early warning systems. We, we train our supervisors to look at, if you see something in one of your deputies, pay attention. You're the ones working with them. You're the one that's seeing them. Sergeants are critical in this piece. And they get it to the supervisors, and we get it to internal affairs. And if we can catch it early on, lots of times in law enforcement, you see a lot of, there could be a lot of drinking. There could just be that lifestyle because they're under so much pressure. And they're not exercising. They're not healthy. So we try to watch for any changes. We watch for that. And we look for any trends. And then we really try to address that. So we're doing everything. I am staying engaged in what's going on with my troops and to hold them accountable. And I, I hold myself accountable and, you know, try to lead that charge. Have you, and this is just a quick follow up, have you guys had to look at, you know, social media and, you know, some of those other places for Huge. people who are three percenters or Oath Keepers or anything like that? Absolutely. We, we have a new employee come in. We have a very strict social media policy. We look at their Facebooks and whatever else, whatever all these other things are. You know, we, we look at all those things. And if somebody gets a complaint, if somebody tells us something, we address it immediately. And absolutely, because you can tell a lot about a person by those posts that they're making, by those pictures that they're taking. So we do, we, we work as hard as we can to keep track. And I meet with every new employee and I talk about holding ourselves accountable off duty. And you see their eyes bulge. I said, yes, you heard it. it may not sound fair, but I'm going to be in your off duty life too. And if you mess up off duty, off life, then you've messed up with me and you're gone. So we really take that really, really serious. So last thing, you mm -hmm. talked about, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to stay on the job to sort of keep the mission on track. Is there anything, you know, big picture stuff that you'd like to mm -hmm. see change or enhanced or done differently over the next four years? So I, I want to see us, the sheriff's office, do a better job of getting our message out. I'm really working on that, that kind of you call it kind of a social media, kind of telling our story. Because if you don't, your perception is your reality. So shame on me if I'm not getting out our mission and our message. And I think we've kind of failed at that, that the uh, actually got a new position that we haven't filled yet um, to help me with getting out my 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 mission and, and what we're doing, the good things we're doing um, in the community or into things we're doing. So I want to do that better. And I want to get... I want to keep up with technology. I want to make sure that the deputies, our detectives, that we have the newest and best technology to help us fight crime. And I want to keep instilling, you know, we have these national, international accreditations. We've got the three. We were the triple crown, first one in North Carolina, sheriff's office. So we've now done that twice. We've, we got them. And then it's like three, four years. They all come to, we got it again. I want that to be our culture that we, somebody's going to have to purposely change the culture and the mission of the sheriff's office, which is to serve the people. So I just want to keep on doing, keep on doing what we're doing. And it is about working together. We're not better than the community. We're holding ourselves accountable to what we hold the citizens accountable. We are one team working together to keep our community safe. All right. Well, Sheriff Ed McMahon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate you. You're listening to elections coverage from the newsroom. That was current Sheriff Ed McMahon, the Democratic incumbent, running for re-election to a fourth full term. Next up, our interview with Matt Rhodes, the Republican challenger looking to unseat McMahon. My guest now is Matt Rhodes. He is the Republican candidate for New Hanover County Sheriff. Matt, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So first things first, uh, what made you want to run for the sheriff's office? Well, I started looking at things happen in the county in regards to escalating crime and growing up here, being a native here. I tell a lot of people when I was growing up here as a teenager, if you had one or two murders, that was a lot. And a lot of times those were crimes of passion, you know, a situation where you had like a, a love triangle, you know, a husband was cheating or a wife was cheating or something along those lines. But now it's become very commonplace for us to have shootings on a regular basis. Uh, we have an issue of people overdosing because we have issues with the um, opioid pandemic uh, or epidemic rather. 
You have an ever-growing population of homeless addicts. You have issues of school violence. And I just didn't recognize my home. And I really want to clean it up and make it a place that everyone can be safe and go about their lives. All right, well, let's get into this. The things you're mentioning are the concerns that we hear about uh, quite a bit. First and foremost, I think we hear most about safety in the schools. I know you've spoken about this elsewhere. But I'm curious how you think about the current SRO program, that's the School Resource Officer Program, in the schools. Well, what I, what I hear about with the SRO program, as well as seeing it because I've had children in the public school system and I still have a daughter, is that a lot of the parents' concerns, as well as mine, is that a lot of times you go into a school, regardless if it's an elementary school or a high school, and the SRO officer is, you know, in the main office checking their Facebook status. They're not patrolling. I don't see them doing that. So a lot of parents tell me they don't ever see the SRO officer unless they go actually to the front office. So the concern is what about the perimeter in regards to someone coming on to the school, uh, someone intercepting that threat to the students as well as to the teachers and staff? that they're not being proactive enough. And one of the things that I talk about is the school shooting at New Hanover that took place about a year ago. Uh, and I call it the, uh, the walkway. Someone told me, you know, it's a catwalk, you know. So anyway, you know, it's from one street to the other. And that video, I do believe, has been pulled. But um, if you look at the footage of that, there was not one SRO officer or authority figure in that catwalk or whatever you want to call it when that shooting took place to intervene or try to stop it. Fortunately, um, the shooter ran out of bullets. Uh, it was a five-shot revolver, and he didn't bring a reload. Otherwise, it might have been a whole different ball game. There was also no one on the actual grounds during the shooting. Now, uh, some people have said, you know, you're, you're wrong about this. But I, I know I'm not because I've seen the footage, and actually I had a, a deputy who retired soon after that, come to me, find me, and tell me, because he was so frustrated that there was not one there. So a follow-up question. Um, The sheriff's point of view on this is that uh, an SRO was on the scene very, very quickly, but to your point, wasn't there during the actual moment of the shooting. In order to have what you're describing, it sounds like you would need a number of SROs. Is that accurate? Well, you would definitely look at the high schools especially, where it appears that a lot of the the violence takes place, but every school has to be protected. And yes, we do need more SRO officers, and we need them better trained, and we need them on the perimeters as well. You also need to teach the teachers and staff how to lock a room down properly in the event that there is an active shooting scenario or this SRO officer, plural, are overwhelmed. Uh, as well as evacuating these students safely. You know, you have to look at these other options because when you look at Uvalde and how it just fell apart there, you know, you want to make sure nothing like that happens here locally. But getting back to that, you know, we sold the hospital or the hospital was sold, and they talk about all the money they have. This would be a great way to put it to good use because the safety of children. And kids are afraid to go to school. Parents are afraid to send them to school. And ultimately, school should be the safest place for them, but it is not. You know, the only time I was afraid to go to school, and I truly mean this, is when I didn't study for a test. Yeah, I think the, the fear has resonated in the community. Um, I would ask, you know, to have the level of, you know, patrolling that you're talking about would take significant financial resources. So that's something you would be comfortable asking the county for. I mean, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're, if you're paying well-trained deputies. I, I, I think that that is money well spent. I have no problem asking them for that money. I have no problem going in front of a camera and saying, here's why we need it. This is a situation where what we have in New Hanover County is we have issues with the drug traffic, and it is pouring into the school system, and you're starting to have retaliatory uh, attacks, and they don't care if your child is there and if they're an innocent bystander. So you have to have people on the perimeter that can intercept this and inside the school system that can intercept this. And why it is so important to have someone like at a crosswalk or, or in the case of New Hanover, the, uh, the catwalk, uh, whatever someone wants to call it, I call it a tunnel. Um, that being said is that in those close areas, 
a lot of times when that violent act takes place, you need to respond right then and there. And a lot of my information on the school violence is secondhand. Um, I have an autistic son. He had several situations where he was attacked. But that being said, I spoke about this and I had a gentleman come up to me and he said, I work at Hoggard. I, I, you know, with all due respect, I think you're wrong. And I said, well, with all due respect, you know, here are all these people talking to me and I'm hearing the same story from different people that don't know each other. So I want to ask about the, the <coughs> other side of the SRO issue, which is concerns we hear from parents who are also worried about violence, but are worried that that kind of law enforcement presence in a school would make kids effectively feel like they are incarcerated and increase the chance that the kind of thing that might normally be dealt with by a principal could become criminalized. So, you know, kids fighting, not the kind of fight you're describing. Sure. But I'm talking about a shoving match in in a hallway that yeah. could be a break it up, guys, uh, is now, you know, a is now a misdemeanor or a felony assault. Yeah. And, I, and I, I mean, you know, you have to have some discretion and, you know, boys will be boys and they will fight and they will shove. And so will girls. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, just a, a disagreement in the hallway. You know, I'm talking about all out physical violence. And the reality, too, is that all around the country, law enforcement has a, a black tarnished eye. Uh, a lot of times they're perceived by the community and a lot of minority communities as the villain. And I would like to rewrite that and make it so that you had these SRO officers or any interaction with, you know, deputies to be a positive one from the standpoint of children, especially interacting with them, talking to them, um, because you never know. One of these children might tell one of these SRO officers, hey, you know, this this child in my class, this student in my class was talking about doing something and it sounded really dangerous, you know, give them some insight, you know. So when I grew up, uh, growing up with a father who was an attorney who had been a uh, veteran World War II, military police officer, both grandfathers, police officers, you know, I always looked at law enforcement as someone who was there trying to help me, support me, protect me. And even when I got pulled over for a speeding ticket, and I deserved it, I was still very respectful. And they were very adamant that, hey, I don't want you to kill yourself by wrapping, you know, your car around a tree. So you want to rewrite that narrative. You don't want to make it so the school system looks like some type of, uh, you know, fort uh, or some type of, like, prison system where you've got SRO officers on every corner. But if you look at everything going on locally and nationwide, we've got to be prepared for anything. I want to shift now to violence in our region in general, outside mm -hmm. of the schools. From the latest stats I've seen, violent crime in the unincorporated county seems to be down. But certainly there's been a lot of high profile violence, especially gun violence in mm -hmm. the city of Wilmington itself. So I want to ask how you think about violence in the city of Wilmington given how the sheriff's office has traditionally worked with the Wilmington Police Department. Do you, how, how would you approach that? Well, the, the thing is this, is that the city is in the county, and I think that's something people need to understand. Okay, so when you hear about city violence, yes, it happened in the city, but it's still New Hanover County. So anything that happens in the city affects the county, and if it is in the county, it affects the city. So what we have now is we've had, I think at this point, 12 murders. Uh, in the city. Um, so a lot of people are concerned about their safety from the standpoint that a lot of these shootings are taking place in broad daylight. Um, you know, and so we had one, I want to say, uh, Sunday morning, and all the details about that are, are not known as of yet. But the thing is that a lot of people are concerned for their safety in the city. Uh, they're concerned about their safety in the county, anywhere in New Hanover County or the city. So the reality is, in that regard, the county has to team up with the city police and work towards trying to de-escalate these situations and try to intervene before they become an issue. I think a lot of times what you're looking at when you're talking about drug violence or gang violence is you definitely want to have informants giving you some idea of what's going on, what's going to happen, what's going to take place. And also, too, what we've seen is that if someone is uh, murdered, and they are in a gang, there's going to be retaliation at some point, you know, because if you look at the school shooting at New Hanover, the shooter's last name was Diablo. And then a couple of weeks ago, 
we had a shooting where one of the victims' last name was Diablo. And if I'm not mistaken, that was a brother or they a relative. Were, they were brothers, yes. Yeah, yeah, relative. So, you know, it goes back and forth. So that's the problem with that. And also, too, not just the violence of shooting, but you look at the county library uh, in August of this year. I think it was August 9th. I went to the county commission August 1st and said, look, the New Hanover County Downtown Public Library is a very dangerous place because you have people staying there that are obviously addicts. And I took photos and you see needles and syringes and trash and feces and urine. And I said, this is a public safety issue from the standpoint of, of health if someone stepped on a needle, but also too, the event that someone could be attacked. And I was told this is a very complicated matter. Well, it is complicated, but there's a very basic way to handle it. But literally, I think it was nine or 10 days later, a young female was raped at the county library by one of these people. So that's something that could have been prevented right then and there, you know, in my mind, if they had worked on trying to shelter these people, identify them, see who they are, and also too, in the process of seeing who they are, you know, finding out if someone, you know, is wanted maybe in another state on a warrant. So I want to break that into two pieces because two very complicated issues. Yeah. So for the city of Wilmington, you know, gun violence in the in Wilmington, which to your point is part of New Hanover County. Traditionally, New Hanover County's sheriff's office has provided sort of a supporting role. There's some mm-hmm. joint task force like the Housing Authority Task Force, the Anti-Gang Task Force. What would your approach to this look like? Just more deputies on the streets, um, more financial resources? How how would you actually go to task <coughs> Well, I, I think you have to look at it from the standpoint of what is bringing all this violence. And it's definitely the issue we have here with drugs, the opioid uh, addiction that we have. And when I was on the New Hanover County Juvenile Crime Prevention Board around 2016, I realized how bad the problem was. And so when you have an area that has an issue with drug dependency, You're going to have people that will come here or that are already here and think nothing of it as far as dealing. And when they start dealing, they're willing to use violence in order to protect their business, their territory, uh, to make sure that everyone knows that, you know, if you buy drugs from us, you pay. If not, you know, there will be some physical repercussions, potentially you dying. Uh, You know, you attack one of my people, I'll attack one of yours. So we've got to get the drugs out of this area. If you could cut the drug from coming into New Hanover County back, even a small percentage, you would see a decrease in the crime. But also, too, I think what you have to have is you have to have law enforcement in the areas that they know the dealing is taking place. Um, Because I remember when I was in school, um, one of the gentlemen who taught one of the classes had been chief of police for Charlotte and chief of police for Myrtle Beach. And he and I would get coffee periodically, and he told me that the way that he took care of the drug issue there is that you put bodies in the areas where you know the dealing's taking place. You have cars patrolling. You make sure that the residents and people that live there understand we are here for your safety. We're trying to get the drug traffic out of here. We're trying to get the violent element out of here. And we want to clean this area up because if you don't have that, basically these people that live there are prisoners in their own neighborhood. So my first thought is that you really have to stop the drug traffic from coming into this area. You have to give deputies and police officers the authority to arrest, the authority to enforce laws, and they also have to feel supported. At the same time, you've got to be respectful. You have to have social skills as a deputy or a police officer as well. And they have to be well-trained to know how to de-escalate a situation. But at the same time, if a situation has already gone to a point where it's a life and death situation, they need to know how to respond to that. But at the same time, make sure that innocent lives are not lost. Is it your understanding that deputies and police officers don't have sufficient authority to arrest? Well, I think a lot of them are of the mindset that basically, you know, they want to they want to be a deputy. They want to be a police officer. But a lot of the ones that I've spoken to and a lot of the ones that have left um, feel that they couldn't do their job adequately because every time they would make an arrest, a lot of times, you know, even though it was a justified arrest, 
you know, someone will point the finger at them and say, you know, you're a hyper aggressive deputy or you're a racist deputy, something along those lines. And a lot of them, too, are very fearful. Um, and a lot of the ones that have left have said to me that, you know, when I first came on and I would get a call, I would get there as fast as I could. They said, now I take my time. I don't want to be the first one there because if I'm the first one there and something happens, even if I've got a body cam on and even if my story is this and the, the footage of my body cam shows that, I'm afraid that someone's going to twist the narrative and make me the villain when I'm really trying to save someone's life. You know, so they're, they're afraid that doing their job is actually going to get them in some type of trouble. Going back to the library, um, some same root causes, right, drugs. Mm-hmm. It's our understanding from talking to the county, one of the issues is that people are simply resisting treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, we have beds, we have facilities, and people will not go often because those facilities require them to be clean, so they won't stop using. From a law enforcement point of view, is there anything else the sheriff's office could do in your mind, or is this other community agencies need to step up? Well, the, the reality is this, is that now has become an issue of public safety. And public safety from the standpoint that you have people that don't want to work at that library, people that will not go to that library, people that will avoid it at, at all possible. And when I show these photos that I have on my, my Facebook page of the library, uh, people just can't believe this is New Hanover County, downtown Wilmington. So if you look at what works and what doesn't work, um, I looked at a project that basically Amsterdam had used, and basically what it was was this, was that Amsterdam had an issue in the 80s and 90s of open drug use, uh, and that's really what we have here, where people were using drugs in open daylight, you know, in broad daylight, and ultimately, okay, that's a crime, but at the same time, it's a situation where it led to other crimes, sometimes violent crime. So basically what they said is, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to identify these people. They've got to be sheltered. They've got to be in some type of treatment. You can't live on the street or in the county or or in a county building. You can't do that. So here's your options. You know, get sheltered, get treatment, or, you know, you will be arrested, you know, because the people can't use drugs in public and, you know, you can't litter you can't urinate, you can't defecate. A lot of the stuff that they're able to do, if you or I did that in our driveway in front of other people, you know, and they called the police, they would come and arrest us. I mean, so, I mean, imagine that if all of a sudden you just went downstairs and decided to to shoot up, you know, right outside of this building, you know, there would be some repercussions in regards to your behavior. But in the behavior of some of these people, there's no repercussions. And people talk about being compassionate. It is not compassionate to let them stay on the street. And at the same time, it is not fair to the citizens who are going about their day, you know, in the case of this young female trying to go into the library and she is sexually assaulted by someone who shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, so the reality is my plan would be shelter, well, first of all, identify who they are. And if they're a veteran, make sure they get their benefits. Um, you know, are they from this area? I understand a lot of them are not. You know, contact their family. You know, are they missing? Does their, is their family looking for them? Is there a way we could get them back to their family? Um, they have to go into some type of shelter. And I know the issue here locally is that we don't have what I believe is called a wet shelter where they can use uh, while they're there, you know, there are certain rules uh, and parameters to stay in there. But also, too, you know, they've got to get into some type of treatment because ultimately, you know, these people on the street, they will die on the street if it's not handled. You know, they, they are going to overdose. They're going to walk out in front of a vehicle. You know, they're going to scare the wrong person, something along those lines. You know, and this is someone's son. This is someone's daughter. I look at it from that standpoint of compassion. But at the same time, if you've got someone who is using in public uh, and putting other people's lives in danger and who is physically aggressive because some of these people now are becoming aggressive. I had a situation with someone like that, uh, and it really surprised me. But fortunately, I knew how to de-escalate the situation. 
So, you know, that's my thoughts on that. But but it's got to be handled. If you continue this, you're going to have a situation where they're going to be in the parks living. Uh, They're going to be on every public corner and every, you know, taxpayer building. And that is not a life for them. And that's not what our dollars are, are put towards in regards to keeping these buildings up to date. So earlier you were talking about law enforcement officers not feeling supported mm-hmm. and certainly being demonized in a lot of public narratives. And I've, I've heard the same thing from law enforcement officers. On the other hand, I've also heard concerns about officers holding extremist views. Mm-hmm. Right? Not an officer wrongfully accused of racism, but an actually racist officer. Sure. What would your approach be to making sure that that kind of mindset doesn't creep into the sheriff's office or isn't already there? Well, you know, what I would tell you is this, is that, you know, a lot of the officers out there are really good doing their job. But there's always going to be a small group in any profession that are bad. And you definitely want to weed those out. Now, look, here's the reality is that you're dealing with a lot of different people, different ages, different, uh, you know, sexes, men, women, you know, all these types of scenarios. So there's no place for racism in this line of work. And the reality is, too, is that you have to have a very, you know, open discussion with your deputies and your employees and your staff, anyone who works in the sheriff's department, and say this will not be tolerated. Okay, so if you've got any extremist views and you think you can't do this job because it might uh, hinder your ability to enforce the law fairly, irregardless of what someone's race is or what sex is or, you know, what God they pray to, whatever the case may be, you know, you have to either deal with that or you have to go. So my thing is this, is that quite honestly, you know, and I teach, you know, professionally uh, personal safety issues and stuff like that. And so a lot of people have said to me, well, you know, uh, I'm afraid of this person or I'm afraid of that person, you know. And a lot of times it would be a situation where it's not a person's race, but a physical stature or demeanor. Okay, like if someone was really big or if someone was acting really crazy. So what I tell people is that if you fear for your life, you fear for your life, regardless of what the person looks like, you know, and then hopefully you don't have to use lethal force, but you have to be able to reasonably explain why you did if you did that. So the aspect of racism in a law enforcement community is no different. You know, you're going to be dealing with all different types of people, and you're going to be working with all different types of people. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I just can't tolerate that as the sheriff of New Hanover County, and it has to be very clear. Now, for me, what's interesting is growing up um, with a father who was a, a local attorney and did a lot of good for a lot of people, I was raised around just a lot of different races, a lot of different people as far as, you know, being literally dirt poor to people that were very wealthy. And I really honestly never saw a whole lot of difference between a white person or a black person or someone who was Hispanic. I never really thought about it. My wife is Lebanese, and um, she is very, very dark. And I remember when we first started dating, what she said to me was, she said, well, you know, I'm not white. And I thought, you know, where does that even come into the conversation? I never thought, well, you know, I'm in love with her, but she's not white. I just loved her irregardless what she looked like, you know. So the thing is you want to be colorblind when you deal with people and judge them on their actions towards you. You know, you've still got to enforce the laws, but, you know, I don't want any good old boy redneck talk at all, okay? So that's what I'm saying to you. Port City United. Mm -hmm. I know you followed this, um, you know, and uh, the sheriff's made his thoughts clear on it. I'm curious how you think about Port City United. Well, it's my understanding that Port City United is an outreach group that is trying to prevent violence within the inner city by basically um, being able to mentor to them, but also at the same time saying, hey, I was in a criminal lifestyle or I was a gang member and this is nowhere you want to be, and trying to prevent them from joining, but at the same time trying to prevent any kind of of physical violence and I would imagine too if they were aware of that they would definitely want to contact someone in the sheriff's department and say hey 
heads up, you know, there might be something happening. I think this is a good idea. Uh, I think it's still young. So I think as far as the success, as far as judging, is it stopping crime in the area? I, I don't really know about that. I do know that they've had one situation, if I'm not mistaken, where they had one of the uh, members of Port City United was, I want to say, arrested for accessory to murder, or something along those lines. So that type of stuff doesn't, doesn't give it the credibility that it, it should have. Um, but I definitely think that what you find in some of these inner cities is that you have a lack of trust with children and parents. So for someone who is from that area or someone who truly understands what they're going through, that might be a better avenue to help them in regards to not getting into a criminal lifestyle. Now, I will say this. Um, I do think that you have to look at it from the standpoint when the county funded that, the Port City United, you have to balance it out between a, a program that is going to be proactive at the same time making sure that the sheriff department has enough for a drug task force and for training these SROs and to put extra SROs in the school system and making sure that doors lock properly, that, you know, uh, they have response and they have training for teachers and students and everyone knows what to do if something were to happen. So, you know, I think it's still early before you can decide, is it successful? I think it's good in theory. And, you know, we'll just have to see over time on that. Sure. So my last question for you, uh, the sheriff's office is a large organization, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of employees, uh, budgets north of $60 million. How do you prepare to take on leadership of uh, something that significant? Well, I mean, I'm a small business owner, and so I understand the ideas of, of balancing a budget. Now, not one to that level. But the reality is, is that you have to go through the budget and you have to look at every single dollar that is being spent because it is taxpayer money and you don't want to waste it. And at the same time, you want to be able to explain to the community why we are asking for this money and how we are properly using it. So, I mean, as far as going through the budget and balancing it out and seeing what we need and what we don't need, for me, I have to go through every different division and see what they're doing. You know, is it successful? Talk to the deputies, talk to the commanding officers, see where they are with that to get a feel for it. But at the same time, too, I'm going to go back to the idea that right now the big concern with a lot of people in this area is school safety. So you definitely want to put adequate dollars towards that to physically make the structures safe, make sure that you have properly trained SRO officers as well as a response team in the event that, hey, something big is happening and they've got three SROs, you know, trying to hold back this threat but it's not enough. You've got to get, you know, the SWAT team in there, make sure that they know how to respond properly as well. But another thing um, I would definitely say, and I, I know this is not part of your question, but one of the concerns that a lot of people have had that they brought to my attention is the sexual assaults that we've had in the school system for the last 20 plus years. You know, and that's one of the things that need to be addressed. And there's never been a plan, to my knowledge, put in place where they said, okay, this is what has happened, and here's how we make sure it doesn't happen again. It's like everyone tends to ignore it. So that's another school safety issue a lot of people just either don't know about or no one wants to talk about because I've gone to the Board of Ed meetings and spoken about it, and I've spoken about it uh, every time I talk because that's a question that comes up, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed and has not been by the current sheriff right now. I will say um, that a lot of that has to do with the uh, the Board of Education and the administration and how they did or did not report things. We're sort of still waiting for a uh, long overdue State Bureau of Investigation mm -hmm. case. To, I, I'd love to see the results of that. I'm very curious where the, uh, the multiple civil cases are going, um, which I think might shed some light on who actually dropped the ball on that? Yeah, and I mean, but here's my thing, too, is this, is that granted, yeah, I mean, the this admin and Board of Education definitely um, has a big part to play in the safety of kids. School should be the safest place for them, and it has not been for a number of reasons. But at the same time, you know, the SROs, the Office of the Sheriff, has been involved in school safety for as long as I can remember. So they are culpable just as well, you know. So for me... 
you know, quite honestly, when you talk about these lawsuits, I'm surprised that someone has not named the current Sheriff McMahon in those lawsuits as well, because he's been sheriff for the last 12 years. So how can it be that someone like Michael Kelly can almost go 20 years undetected when all these parents are saying, we've gone to the school system, we've told them. So either the SROs didn't know, and they should have, or they did know and they did nothing. I mean, that, that would be my thought on that. That's to me. It's as a counterfactual because I I can't I can't speak to whether or not they knew. Oh yeah, um, I would hope. Well, would you would hope that you would hope they would know. Yeah. Okay. So last couple of moments here. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, what I plan to do in New Hanover County is to make it safe again. I know a lot of people are concerned about the drugs. A lot of parents are concerned about fentanyl and their children dying of an overdose. I've dealt with a lot of families in the course of the last nine months talking to me about their child that they lost to an overdose. So what I would tell people is this, is that we have to get the drug issue in this county under control. We have to take the schools back, all 45 public schools, and make them safe for the children to learn. You can't learn if you're terrified. And at the same time, we also have to deal with a problem that's been ignored the homeless addicted uh, that we have in New Hanover County, and there's a way to do that uh, compassionately, but at the same time keeping the citizens safe as well as these people that are addicted safe because you can't treat your way out of this uh, because treatment is not always successful. So we have to stop the drugs from flowing here. You'll see a decrease in crime. Schools will be far safer. This will be a far better, safer place to live. All right, Matt Rhodes, thank you so much for your time. Well, that's it for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to the candidates Ed McMahon and Matt Rhodes. If you're listening to this, there's a pretty good chance you already know how to find our show as a podcast. But just in case, you can listen and subscribe on Google and Apple's podcast services, as well as on Spotify and Stitcher. I'm Ben Schockman, reminding you that early voting starts on October 20th and ends November 5th, and Election Day is November 8th. Get out and vote, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.